My name is Frank Turek. Before I get started, let me ask you this. How many have heard me before or this is your first time? <laughs> how many of you are here today? Okay, how many don't respond to surveys? It's an election year. We need to know this. April 1945, the Allies liberate the Buchenwald concentration camp outside of Wiedmar, Germany. They go through the main gate, which is still there. They look to the right. They see the crematorium, which is still there. They look into the courtyard attached to the crematorium, and this is what they saw. Brace yourself. If there's a good God, where was he? A beautiful day 11 years ago in New York City. 3,000 Americans murdered. Where was this good God the Bible talks about? Last year, people resting comfortably in their homes. An earthquake, a tsunami, wipes out, wipes out thousands in Japan. Where's this good God the Bible talks about? Does he even exist? You know, it's been said this way before, when thousands of people who you don't know die, it's a statistic. But when one person you do know who you love dies, it's a tragedy. This man right here helped me start our ministry, crossexamine.org. He was on our board. He helped me co-author a curriculum based on our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, a book I wrote with Dr. Norman Geisler. Last summer, he went into surgery that was serious surgery, but just about everybody survives it. We covered him in prayer. He came out of the surgery fine. Then complications occurred. Twelve hours later, he was dead. Sixty-four years old. His wife, Buff, who, if there ever was a definition of a saint, she is a 58-year-old widow. Where was God? And you in here can tell me of Christian couples, parents of small children dying, and children dying. Where is this good God? Aren't Christians supposed to not have to deal with such evils and suffering? Here's what we're going to try and do in the time we have. The first thing we're going to talk about is, does evil disprove God? Because it's commonly thought that it does. Secondly, does God promise to protect us? Christians, that is. If we're Christians and if we have enough faith, isn't God obligated to protect us? And why doesn't God stop evil? If he's so good and so powerful, why doesn't he just stop it? And then finally, we're going to talk about what's the purpose of evil. Now, how many thousands of books have been written on this topic? There is no way I could even hardly summarize everything that's been written and cover all the bases on such a vast topic. Actually, I probably could do it because I'm originally from New Jersey. 
okay? You see, I speak at 150 words a minute with gusts to 350, okay? So I'm going to go through this material extremely quickly. If you can't keep up, we have some resources on the book table out there. First of all, our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which builds the case for Christianity from the ground up and also talks about if God, why evil. In the very center is a two-hour DVD from our TV program that deals with this issue in a lot more detail. And if you want the video version of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist uh, that goes through the material from the book and is kind of a complement to the book, get the video series I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's all on the book table out there. And I want to point out, by the way, that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know, I've got three sons. We've already put two of them through college. In fact, the first two went uh, to the University of South Carolina. In fact, the third one did as well. That's right. We have some Gamecocks in here. And uh, they went through Air Force ROTC. So they're both Air Force officers now. The oldest one is an intelligence officer serving in Las Vegas because he's working with the guys that fly the drones. Do you know all the drones that are flown in the war zones are flown out of Las Vegas? Did you know that? And you thought there was no real-world application for Xbox. <laughs> there is! The second son is right now in flight training with the Air Force. In fact, he's down in Del Rio, Texas. And the third son is not in the Air Force, but he's an engineer at the University of South Carolina. He's a junior now, so for about the past two years, my wife and I have been empty nesters. Took us a while to get used to that. About ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's how long it took to change the locks. <laughs> Do we have any empty nesters in here? Can I see your hands, please? Do you notice how, how clean the house stays when they're gone? It's amazing. Anyway, there's a lot more resources on the website, impactapologetics.com. And by the way, we also have a TV program and a radio program. Uh, the TV program's on every Wednesday nights on DirecTV, 8 p.m. and midnight if you're an insomniac. Uh, DirecTV channel 378. How many people here have DirecTV? Can I see your hands, please? DirecTV. Like six of us. Come on, why not the rest of us? Friends don't let friends watch cable. If you want to get out and have enough faith to be an atheist, you've got to get DirecTV. Actually, that's not true. If you go to our website, crossexamine.org right there, click on TV show, you can watch it live. It's, it's streamed. It's not archived. It's streamed. We do have radio every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. In the Dallas area, it's uh, low on the FM dial. I don't know the exact uh, station. Does anyone know? Low on the FM dial. Uh, but if you, if you don't listen to it live, it is podcasted. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. A one-hour apologetics program. All right, let's go back to our topic now. Does evil disprove God? Well, let's put all this into context. Does God exist? We're going to have a two-column chart here. I'm going to list a number of evidences that I think point to the existence of God. Now, I can't go into detail here. They're in our book, and you can get other books as well that go through this. I'm just going to list them to get some context on the question, does God exist? The beginning of the universe. Time, space, and matter had a beginning. If time, space, and matter had a beginning, the cause must transcend time, space, and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. That's exactly what we mean by God. The fine-tuning of the universe and design of the universe. From the very initial conditions of the universe, the universe was fine-tuned for life. There's only three possibilities for that. It's either design, it's either physical necessity, or it's chance. The best explanation is design. 
The third line of evidence that there's some sort of designer, which I think would be God, is the genetic code. You have a genetic code three billion letters long. Who made that? Codes don't write themselves. You need programmers to do that. It's like believing that Microsoft Word came without a programmer. And your genetic code is a lot more complicated than Microsoft Word. Life also. Where does life come from? The same is true with consciousness and free will. Not just any life, but conscious life appears to be better explained by theism than certainly it does by non-theism. Intelligence and reason. How did dead matter give rise to intelligence? You can't give what you haven't got. How does matter give us intelligence? It appears that our minds are fashioned uh, in the structure of the great mind. And the laws of logic, where did they come from? They're immaterial laws that we're using right now to communicate. It's not explained by materialism. These laws aren't material. They're immaterial. The laws of nature. I remember John Lennox debated Richard Dawkins, and there was a question from the audience, and the audience said, uh, Dr. Dawkins, where did the laws of physics come from? And he said, well, I have no idea. But then he went on to say, but bringing God into it doesn't help. Well, actually, bringing God into it does help. You ever ask the question, why is the world so orderly? Why can we take a spaceship and put it on Mars? Because we can depend on the laws of nature to be precise. That's the product of a mind. It's certainly not the product of randomness. In fact, think about this. You wouldn't even know what randomness was unless you knew what order was. Order is the product of a mind. It's not the product of nothingness or randomness. How about objective morality, which we'll talk about again here in a minute? Where did that come from? It's not explained by atheism. It's best explained by theism. We could talk about Old Testament prophecy, and of course we could talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Now on the other side of the equation here is evil. The best argument against God is evil. But is evil really an argument against God? Turns out that no, evil is not an argument against God. You say, how so? Because objective evil presupposes objective good, and objective good presupposes a standard outside of ourselves that establishes what good is. And that standard we would call God's very nature. So evil is actually an argument for God, not an argument against God. Now, you can ask, why is there so much evil, which we'll get into, but you can't say that if evil exists, God doesn't exist, not, I think, reasonably anyway, because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was a standard of good, and there must be a standard of good out there, outside of ourselves, that establishes what goodness is, so we would even know what evil is. In fact, you could put it this way, the shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, evil, you have to have sunshine, good. Oh, you can have good, you can have sunshine without shadows, but you can't have shadows without sunshine. You can't have evil without good. In fact, this is what brought C.S. Lewis ultimately to theism, and then finally, I should say, finally, initially to theism, and then finally to Christianity, is he thought, being an atheist, the reason he was an atheist is because there was too much evil in the world. And as you know, he wrote in Mere Christianity this. He said that as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? 
You see, if there's injustice, there must be justice. If something is not right, there must be something that is right. So the very idea that there's evil out there presupposes a standard of objective good. So let's go back to our chart here. And you might be able to add a few more items on the left. But at the end of the day, we're going to take evil and actually put it on the yes side of the ledger. Now, this doesn't mean that we've answered all the questions regarding evil. But if evil does exist, it points back to God. It doesn't necessarily point to atheism. And by the way, it's not just Christians that have to answer the question, if God, why evil? Atheists have to answer it too. And as soon as they open their mouth to complain about something, they're presupposing a standard of good. In effect, they're borrowing from God in order to argue against him. So, does evil disprove God? No. Second question. Does God promise to protect us? I mean, does God promise to protect Christians from evil and suffering? There's a very common kind of theology out there called the Word of Faith theology. You've heard of this, right? That God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, and all you need to do is, if you have enough faith, you will be healthy and wealthy. This theology is easily refuted by pointing out one thing. I guess Jesus and the apostles never got the memo. (laughs) Don't tell me Jesus and the apostles didn't have enough faith. They suffered horribly. I mean, here is a painting of Peter being crucified upside down, but it wasn't just Peter. Look at the heroes of the faith. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Job, John the Baptist, Stephen, James the brother of John, James the brother of Jesus, John himself exiled, Peter, Paul, Jesus. Many of these men have been crucified, executed, perhaps sawn in two. Don't tell me they didn't have enough faith. God does not promise to protect us. He tells us to pray for protection, protect us from the evil one, protect us from evil. But that doesn't mean in this life we're going to be immune from evil and suffering. In fact, he even tells us that we won't be. Even the Old Testament says so. In Psalm 44, awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? These were... These weren't people who thought they were in sin at the time. They thought they hadn't forgotten God, and yet God had forgotten them. Why? Jesus himself says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He went on in the next chapter to say, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. If you have enough faith, you won't. No, he didn't say that at all. Paul said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Have you been persecuted yet for what you believe? If you haven't, maybe they don't know what you believe. If you suffer as a Christian, said Peter, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Do you really praise God when you suffer? That you bear his name? The writer of Hebrews, of course, said, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. What father doesn't discipline a son? Sometimes evil and suffering comes as a result of discipline, but not always. You know, there's a lot of people that say to me, I don't believe in God, and then I ask them, what kind of God don't you believe in? When they describe that kind of God to me, I go, I don't believe in that kind of God either. Because we might be believing in the wrong kind of God. Are we really believing in the true God? 
If we read the scriptures, does God promise that everything's going to go well, pain-free in this life? No, in fact, he promises, in effect, the opposite. And here's our problem when we look at the Bible. We remember when God protects people in the Bible, but forget when he does it, when he doesn't. And we forget when God protects people in our lives and remember when he doesn't. You notice that? We look at all the highlights in the Bible, all these miracles that occur and everybody's saved, and we go, yay, God! And we forget when there is no miracle. We forget when an innocent man is crucified. In effect, we dwell on the positive in the Bible and the negative in our lives, and we wonder why the two don't meet. God does not promise to protect us. He wants us to ask for protection, but for his own purposes, we might not get it. Next question, why doesn't God stop evil? I go to a lot of college campuses, and I present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. In fact, I was just down at Sam Houston State on uh, Thursday presenting this. And whenever you title something, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you get everybody from atheist to Christian showing up. So you always get a lot of atheists showing up. And I was at Michigan State a year or two ago, and... uh, I just remember one guy sitting in the audience like this. I mean, he wasn't even laughing at any of the jokes. And I've got some funny jokes, I'm telling you. Some little videos, which everybody laughs at, but this guy's just sitting there going, well, I could tell he was not a happy camper. And I knew that when the Q&A time came, he was going to be hot. So I asked for questions and shot up his hand and said, yes, sir. He said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? I said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you. (laughs) And me. Because we all do evil every day. You ever notice that? We always want God. Hey, stop that guy over there. He's doing all that evil in the world. Why doesn't he stop all the evil? And we never think that we do evil every day as well. If God stopped all the evil in the world, he would take away our free will, which meant we couldn't love. If we couldn't love, what's the point of this world? And then I said, sir, that it really, seriously, is an excellent question. And I could spend 15 minutes, 15 hours talking about it. But let me show you a one minute and 46 second video that I think encapsulates the one of the answers very succinctly and I want to show you that video now you've got to watch closely there's a lot going on in this video it's only one minute and 46 seconds can I hold your attention for that long okay good are you guys ready the video is called is God good and here it is is God good if he is Why is there suffering and evil? Let's assume for the moment that God is all-powerful. This means that God can do anything that is logically possible. So he can create galaxies and subatomic particles and rainforests and you. But God cannot do what is logically impossible. He cannot make a square circle or a one-ended stick. So can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No. So what if, when God created human beings, he wanted them to be free? Freedom's a good thing. 
But if humans are to be free, they cannot be forced to obey God, because freedom without choice is like a square circle. It's a logical contradiction. No choice, no freedom. God didn't want robots. He wanted real people. The first humans endowed with the awesome power of free choice abused their freedom. The tragic consequences of their bad choice and our bad choices ripple across the world. God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but humans are responsible for their acts of freedom. But let's remember, we don't suffer alone. God will put an end to suffering and evil. And God became a man to suffer with us. God is good, and he wants real people like you to know him. But the free choice is yours. I know you probably want to see that again if you do go to our website, crossexamine.org. Click on video clips, and it's there. You can watch it as much as you want. You can download it and use it, okay, if you want. Uh, it's on YouTube, and it was put together by Jim Zangmeister, who works for the Billy Graham organization, and we hire him to do these videos as well. Brilliant stuff. Now, there's a lot more that could be said, but, of course, the bottom line is we have free will. And because of that free will, we've fallen. We live in a fallen world. We know things are not right. But the entire purpose of the Bible can be summed up in one word. What is it? What's the theme? Reconciliation or redemption. You have paradise lost in Genesis, paradise regained in Revelation. Everything in between is the story of redemption. God comes to save people from their own sin. Started by our own choice that we made. Now, there's one other item we need to deal in this question here, or in this section, and that is, do you remember there was some crazy professor who said, you know, maybe these people were just worse sinners. That's, that explains it. These people were worse sinners, and that's why they got their just desserts. Well, Jesus actually answers that in one amazing passage in Luke 13 where he answers moral evil and natural evil. What's the difference? Moral evil is when someone murders somebody, right? A person commits a crime, an evil. Natural evil is, say, a natural disaster. And Jesus spoke about two issues in Luke chapter 13. One, moral evil, when Pilate took uh, some Galileans, sacrificed them, and mixed their blood with the sacrifice. And a natural evil... Uh, when a tower fell on some people. And here's what Jesus said to the question, maybe they were just worse sinners. Here's what he said. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, might negative consequences come to you because of your sin? Of course. But you can't universally say that when something happens, it's because they're worse than you. This is what Jesus is saying here. We all deserve punishment. And the fact that Jesus is merciful, that God is merciful, we haven't received it yet. 
Let's go to question number four, and we'll spend our most time on this. After does God disp- or does evil disprove God? No. Does God promise to protect us? Not necessarily. Why doesn't God stop evil? Because he stopped evil, he stopped free choice, and then this world would be unable to yield its ultimate result, a choice for Christ or not. So what is the purpose of evil then? What is the purpose? I mean, think about this. In order to answer this, you've got to answer, what's the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? Is it to be happy? Is it to get stuff? Is it to have fun? Is it to be healthy and wealthy? What is the purpose of life? This is the interactive portion of the program. I mean, why are we here? Is life just a glorified Monopoly game? Get a whole bunch of stuff now because when the game is over, it's all going to go back in the box? Is that it? You know, one preacher put it to his congregation this way. He said, one day you are going to die. And they're going to dig a hole somewhere, and they're going to put you in your best suit or your best outfit. They're going to put you in a box... They're going to lower that box into that hole. Then they're going to throw dirt in your face and go back to the church and eat potato salad. (laughs) Is that it? You just take a dirt nap for all eternity? You got all the toys and then you die. I mean, you can't take it with you, right? Imagine, though, if you could. Imagine if you get to heaven and Peter goes, hey, did you bring your stuff? (laughs) No, I didn't. Trump brought his stuff. (sighs) You can't go back now. Sorry, should have brought your stuff. No, you, you don't bring your stuff. What is, what is the purpose of life? You know what the purpose of life is? The same purpose for which Harvard University began. Harvard University? That liberal institution in Taxachusetts? Are you kidding me? Yes, Harvard University began on a Bible verse. John Harvard was a clergyman. In fact, most of our major universities in the early days were started by Christians. And this is their charter. And you really got to dig to find this. They don't want anybody to know this. But this was their initial charter in 1636. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom is the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. The purpose of life is to know God and make him known. And the purpose of the church, in addition to worship, is to equip you so you can go make him known. So you can know him and make him known. Pastor Todd's not supposed to do all the ministry here. He's supposed to equip you to go do the ministry. That's the purpose of life, to know God and to make him known. Not just intellectually, but volitionally. Even the demons know that God exists, but they don't put their trust in him. Greg Kokel, before, was talking about the difference between faith and trust, or I should say, uh, believing in and believing that. Everybody, in order to become a Christian, should believe that the Bible's true, right? You've got to get evidence that the Bible's true. Get evidence that God exist. Get evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. That's apologetics. That's what we're doing here. Get evidence that it's true. But all the evidence in the world won't make you a Christian. You have to then take a step of trust in Christ in order to be saved. You can know that it's true and still not be saved. When I first met my wife 27 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. 
And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> and so here we are. But that's the difference between belief that is apologetics, that's just the head, and belief in is not just the head, it's also the heart. And so when we say know God and make him known, it's not just the head, it's also the heart. It's both and. Now here's the problem with knowing God. In our fallen state, knowing God often requires pain. Let me ask you a question in here. How many people who are Christians came to God through pain? Can I see your hands, please? Look around the room. That is, of course, why C.S. Lewis said this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Pain wakes us up. When things are going too well, we often forget about God. That's why Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. Didn't say it was impossible. Said it's hard. Why? Because we tend to put our trust in riches. But when you're going through difficulty, when you're going through pain, sometimes you look to God. Sometimes you only look up when you're on your back. Let me ask you another question. What if you got everything you wanted every time? What if every desire in your heart you got? Everything went your way every day. What would you become? You would become a spoiled brat. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Think about it. I mean, what do we call kids who get everything they want? We call them spoiled. What's spoiled about them? Their character is spoiled. If you give us, in our fallen state, everything we want, we're going to become even more of a moral monster than we already are. It's going to become all about us. Nothing about God or others. Pain, ultimately, can work, and suffering can work to bring a greater good. And the scriptures are very clear on this. Even back in Genesis Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The writer of Hebrews says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be, may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you count it joy when you go through trials? Well, this is joyful. One reason God doesn't totally put the pain rheostat in our control, because if he did, we'd never turn it up. Paul, in the great book of Romans, says, We also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Just like if you give a kid everything he wants, you give an adult everything he wants or she wants, you're going to ruin them. In fact, if you think about this, you've heard this before, it's true. There, if there is no pain, there is no gain. Some virtues can only be developed through evil and trial. You can't develop courage unless there's danger. You can't develop perseverance without obstacles. You can't develop compassion without suffering. You can't develop patience without tribulation. I'm an impatient person. I've been praying for patience for quite a while, and frankly, I'm getting tired of waiting for it. (laughs) 
You can't develop character without adversity, and you won't develop faith or trust without need. So virtues, some virtues can only be developed through pain and suffering. Now the Bible sums this up. It's not just no pain, no gain. It actually says more pain, more gain. What? The Bible sums up an amazing section of scripture on suffering at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now some of you here are not Christians are going, well, why does he keep quoting the Bible? How do we know the Bible's true? Get one of our books out there to know why the Bible's true. I'm just assuming it's true at this point. You don't have to get my book. You can get Bill Craig's book, On Guard, which is a good book that does the same kind of thing. There's plenty of good resources out there. So if you're out, out there assuming, why is he just assuming the Bible's true? Well, I'm not assuming it. It is true, but I have evidence for it. Now I'm assuming it's true and looking at it to see what it says. And it's not just no pain, no gain. It's more pain, more gain. The end of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now I'm going to use a trivial illustration here. But it's an illustration we'll all understand. Because we all love football here. In fact, I see some Dallas Cowboy fans in here right now. You are going to hate this illustration. <laughs> but that's just too bad. Because I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> Five years ago, well, let me go back. About nine years ago, the New York Giants traded to get the number one pick for Eli Manning. And for about the first four years of his career, he was at best mediocre. And he took a lot of abuse. You're never going to be as good as your brother. You're not anywhere near your brother. I can't believe the Giants wasted the first pick on you. Are you kidding me? And this is New York, of course, right? So it's doubly brutal. Then, as you all know, in 2007, he did pretty well. He got into the playoffs and went through four road games including one here in Dallas, if I remember correctly. And then one up against an undefeated team who had 19-0 trademarked. <laughs> and we all know what happened. Eli not only led them to victory, he won the MVP award. And we all know he just did it again against those hated patriots. Now here's my question. There's 53 guys on a football team, including a second and third string quarterback. The third string quarterback, who didn't play a down all year, was in the winning locker room. He got to touch the Lombardi trophy. He was part of the team. He gets the ring, the whole deal. But do you think he enjoyed the celebration as much as Eli did? No, why not? Because Eli went through all the pain. He went through all the suffering. He went through all the naysayers. All the people who said he couldn't do it, he probably doubted it himself. He went through difficulty, which made the victory even sweeter. This is what Paul is saying here. That all the difficulty that we experience here on earth will magnify the glory we will experience in eternity. He even says this in Hebrews. Some even achieved a greater resurrection for going through the difficulty. Now, some of you are saying, okay, Frank, I can see that 
pain can bring gain, that suffering can bring good things, but I have an objection. There certainly is no purpose for some evil. I see so much gratuitous evil out there that there's no way that good could come from it. My question to you is, how could you know that? How could you know there's no good that can come out of what seems like gratuitous evil? Are you omniscient? In fact, only someone with an eternal perspective could know God. Imagine you read a novel halfway through and you stop and you go, this stinks, this is unjust, it didn't resolve itself. You go, well, keep reading. We are like in the middle of a novel here on earth. We don't see the end from the beginning. We're told it's all going to work out. But we don't necessarily see how. This earthly life is not the end of the story. With billions of interacting free choices made every day, every evil may result in good either now or later in eternity. This is known as the ripple effect. And this thought liberated me because I always struggled with this idea of gratuitous evil. But we don't know how one event can change history or change the future in the sense that something's going to happen in the future as a result of this event. We don't know because we don't have that perspective. Only God does. There are so many interacting choices that go on that the only way to know that would be to be outside the time continuum. And that's exactly where God is. In the ontological sense. He's beyond it all and he can see the end from the beginning. You guys ever see the movie, and you're going to see it again this Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life? What's kind of the, 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 the moral of It's a Wonderful Life? The moral is, it's a wonderful life. No. The moral is, is you don't know what kind of impact you might have on others. You think you have no impact. You think your life's worthless. And yet you have amazing impact that you won't know until you get to heaven. Jimmy Stewart is given the opportunity to go back and see what the world would be like if he didn't exist. And how his entire town, his entire family was much worse off without him. He never knew it when he was on earth. That's the ripple effect. And just because you can't see how one particular act could have a good outcome doesn't mean it doesn't in fact i don't know the purpose for some evil but i do know why i don't know i'm finite he's infinite i know why i don't know if you ask me why did a certain baby die i can't tell you why but i know why i can't tell you why because i'm finite and you would need more knowledge than i have to know that you know sometimes you can see the purpose let me go back to my friend Chuck, who died at 64 years old, after following God most of his adult life, after everybody praying for him. Well, his wife, Buff, whom we've since hired in our ministry, who's a brilliant lady, we have dinner with her probably twice a week, my wife and I do, and about uh, two months ago, we're sitting over dinner, and... Um, we got talking about Chuck, and she said this. She said, if Chuck were given the chance to come back right now and reset things back to the way they were before he died, I don't think he would do it. Not, for, not because he, want, he wouldn't want to live heaven. That wasn't her point. 
I said, well, well, why not? Why wouldn't he come back and reset things to about a year ago? And she said, because I've grown so much in Christ since Chuck's death that Chuck wouldn't want me to revert back. I depended too much on Chuck when he was here rather than Christ. And I'm closer to Christ now than I ever have been in my life. She said, if I were given the opportunity to have him back right now and revert back, I would do it in a heartbeat because I love him. But him knowing what he knows now would never cause me to go back to the way I was. Because the purpose of this life is not just to be comfortable, it's not to be happy, it's not to be healthy and wealthy. The purpose of this life is to know God and make him known. And she knows God much more now than she did 15 months ago. So if you're going through difficulty now, you might want to ask yourself that question. How is this making me or helping me to know God? So does evil disprove God? No, evil can't disprove God. It actually is an argument for God. Does God promise to protect us? He wants us to depend on him. But he doesn't promise that everything is going to go well for us in terms of pain and suffering here on this earth. In fact, he promises that if we follow him, we will be persecuted. We will suffer. We're called to it. Why doesn't God stop evil? Because if he stopped evil, we'd have no free will to love. By the way, does God stop evil in eternity? No, he just quarantines it. That's what hell is. Hell is separation from God. There's smoking and non-smoking. <laughs> and the smokers will never again bother the non-smokers. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of that, actually. Hell is separation from God, and God will not force any person into heaven against that person's will. I get that question all the time on college campuses. Am I going to hell because I don't trust Jesus? No. You're not going to hell because you don't trust Jesus. You're going to hell because you sin. You can avoid going to hell by trusting Jesus, but if you don't want Jesus now, you're not going to want him in eternity, so God lovingly withdraws himself from you. That's what hell is. What's the purpose of evil? We just went through it. But one more thing we need to deal with, and that's this. What are you going to do about the evil in your own heart? Every one of us in this room is evil. It's much easier to be bad than it is to be good. Somebody already did something about it. God did not spare his own perfect son from suffering. His pain is our gain. Christ is the only way because he's the only perfect being that didn't deserve punishment yet took it on himself on our behalf. So you have an opportunity to take the evil that you've done and the evil in your own heart and have Christ pay for it rather than yourself. Now again, there's more in the back of the room on this. I want you to take a look at the book table, and there are many other great books out there. Greg Kokel's book, Tactics You Need to Have. You need to have On Guard by William Lane Craig. You have to have Daniel Wallace's book. You have, you have to have all of our books. <laughs> Anything written by Ravi, God reads. 
I didn't know that. Whew. <laughs> and there's a little card out there on our website, crossexamine.org. If you fill out that little card and give us your email address, we will send you one email a month that will have some apologetic insights on it and let you know where we are and what we're doing. It'll hopefully be helpful to you. You're not going to get a thousand Viagra emails if you... Okay, we don't give your email address to anybody else. It just stays with us. And you get to keep the bookmark as well. I asked uh, Todd if I could do one more thing. And he's allowed me to do this. Normally you don't do this in church. But I'm going to take two minutes to do it. And this may be controversial. And if it is, get over it. I want to ask you a question. What is this? That's Korea. That's the Korean Peninsula at night. You see, South Korea is filled with light. It's filled with productivity. It's filled with the gospel. It's one of the most Christianized countries in the world. North Korea is a concentration camp. This is a homogeneous population of Koreans. Yet there's a vast difference between the South and the North. And there's one primary reason for the difference. One primary reason. What's the primary reason? Jesus. No, it's not Jesus, actually. Although Jesus would help. Someone said freedom. Electricity, Electricity helps, too. The primary reason between the South and the North is politics. <gasps> he said it in church. <laughs> yeah, politics. Politics puts good or evil into law. And for those of you out there that thinks... And for those of you out there that think we just got to preach the gospel, let's not get involved in politics. If you think that, you don't think the gospel is very important. Why, why don't you think it's very important? Because politics affects our ability to preach the gospel. If you don't think so, try this in North Korea. Try this in some of the countries I've been to. I've been to Iran, Saudi Arabia, China. You can't do what we're doing in this building right now. Why? Because politically they've ruled it out. In fact, if you think about it, politics affects everything we do. Politics affects your church, your children, your health, your money, your business, your freedom, your property, your school, your home, your security, your safety, the poor, the unborn, everyone and everything. And if you just want to live in a bubble somewhere and say, it isn't going to affect me, they're going to come to this church one day and shut your doors. Unless the church wakes up. Amen. Pastor Todd, come on up here for a minute, would you, sir? This man is not afraid to speak the truth. <laughs> you know, I really think we ought to get the uh, OSHA in here yeah. to, you know, put up some railings or something. What do you, what do you think? That's what happened. To, oh, here we go. That's what happened to Kokel earlier. He blew his knee out doing that. I, I survived. This man is fearless, and he was one of the signers of the Manhattan Declaration. Manhattan Declaration.org. 
And you need to go there and sign this because as Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. You want to fight evil? Do something. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Frank.